Welcome back to Breaking Brave. I am your host, Marilyn Barefoot. Matt Botel is an engineer turned social entrepreneur, and in my view, a true angel among us. Matt can be found in an expansive warehouse on Phillip Island, which is 140 kilometers southeast of Melbourne, Australia, making 3D printed prosthetic limbs, which he sends to people all over the world for free. Matt's charity, Free 3D Hands, believes that anyone who is born with a limb difference shouldn't have to spend a cent on something that's going to put a smile on their face and allow them to try things they've never done before. Matt Botel and his charity have changed the lives of thousands of people globally. The stories he tells instills a renewed sense in me of hope and belief in human kindness. Welcome to Breaking Brave, Matt. So I am here and very far away from my guest because my guest today is talking to us from Australia. His name is Matt Botel, and he is the founder of the most amazing initiative company charity called Free 3D Hands. So welcome to Breaking Brave, Matt. Oh, thank you very much. It's it's lovely to be here. I'm going to just start off the top with... What's the journey? Can you just hit me with, and you can go as as far back as you want, because I got something on my wall that talks about an electric water pistol. (laughs) So you can go as far back as you want. (laughs) Okay. Well, um, I was doing something very, very different six years ago. I was working as a senior engineer at Toyota Australia. And it was uh, a 10-year career for me. I loved what I did had so many opportunities. They had spent probably half a million dollars training me over in Japan. And my background was in lean manufacturing. So I was a, an, an engineer that was employed to improve production processes. And um, my career was going really well, uh, lots of opportunities. And then all of a sudden in, in February 2014, uh, we were all called into the assembly plant, two and a half thousand employees. You can imagine um, that many people in the one room. And, um, and they had the president of Toyota fly out from Japan and announce to us all that we'd be ceasing manufacturing of cars in Australia, following um, some of the other automotive manufacturers pulling out. We were in a time of a, you know, it was, it was a post-GFC, the Australian dollar was very, very high, which made our exports not very competitive globally. You know, it was they called it the the perfect storm. Or everything was telling us that we should no longer be making cars in Australia. And they made the decision that we'd be closing down and that most of us would not have a job. And that there would be no other automotive manufacturers in Australia to utilize our skills. That we we had to transition away from what we knew. And for a lot of people, a lot of the people that I worked for, that was the only thing that they'd ever done. And, um, you know, some people had been working in the same company for 40 years. And I, I suppose, you know, over in the, in the States, they went through a similar thing in Detroit, where all of a sudden a lot of people were out of work and, and they had these very specific skills that... Um, they could no longer, they didn't feel that they could apply and it was a, a very dark time. But, but for, for myself, I thought, wow, um, 
that's three and a half years away. They they had announced in 2014 that it would be about October 2017 that we would be walking out the gates for the last time. And um, the next few days, I you know it was a little bit quiet in the office. People were going through a whole range of emotions. Some people were angry. Some people you could see fear of change in their eyes. And and I made a decision um, that I wasn't going to be gloomy for the next three and a half years. I wasn't going to be feeling sorry for myself or fearful of change. I was going to embrace it. And um, and I just really just started to listen to callings, you know, the what, try to ask myself rather than make a decision uh, that, you know, a, a simple decision, all right, I'll just pick up and, and move somewhere else and do the same thing that I've been doing now. I thought this might be an opportunity to do something completely different. And when I was thinking that, I was, I was asking myself if money was taken completely out of the equation, what would I do with my life? Because I think that money often, well, the fear of not having money, I, sh- I should say, um, often makes a lot of it, the decisions for us. It does. And, um, and a lot of people that are made redundant, they don't have that luxury mm-hmm. uh, of time to, to really figure that out. And um, a lot of people are told, right, your services are no longer required. There's a, a box. You can put all your belongings in it. And, and walk out the door and security will take you to the gate. <laughs> Where in, in our case, um, it was very, very different. The, the company were extremely supportive. They even set up a, a job center full time for the next several years. We had an individual case manager that we could um, go to for, for career counseling, resume writing classes, additional training, you know, what, whatever we wanted to do. Um, and the, the company really created this freedom for us to be able to do that. So I think I was very blessed in in being able to do that. Sounds like they were wonderful about it in terms of yeah. allowing you to take all the time you needed, like even giving you that much notice, that's essentially unheard of, but a job center. So you had amazing supports to be able to give this some long, hard thought. Yeah, it was, um, it was, it was really quite amazing. And, um, and, and so for myself, I, um, I really just started listening to my heart, I suppose, rather than my head, you know, the head's very logical. Um, the heart's not so logical and, and, and really just asked myself the questions that I'd never really asked myself before. Um, often in, in school, you know, growing up, we get asked, what do you want to do when you grow up? You know, the what, um, but I think that the why is more important, you know, to ask ourselves, why are we here? You know, all of these experiences that have brought us to this point, you know, are we happy with how our life journey is going? And is there a way that we can live a, a more fulfilling life? And, um, and I just asked myself the basic questions, you know, what do I enjoy? Because I think if you enjoy something, you'll spend a lot of time doing it. And if you spend a lot of time doing it, you'll become good at it. And if you are good at it, you'll be adding value. If you can add value, then people will be willing to support you or pay <laughs> um, pay you to do that somehow. And, um, and, and so I actually went through a photo album from my childhood. I, that was the, one of the first things that I did. And um, it seems quite childish, but I went through these, these photo albums and, um, and looked at all of the photos from my childhood 
and try to pick out the ones where I was actually happy in the photo, not just smiling for the camera. And and I took these photos out in, and made a little pile of photos. And I noticed there was a common theme amongst all of these photos where I remember being happiest. And it was when I was creating. I was um, flying a model airplane. I'd have a picture of a model airplane in my hand that I'd just built or or a rocket that I'd built. I used to make lots of rockets as a, as a kid or um, someone had uh, taken a photo of me while I was doing a painting. I was actually um, trying to replicate the Mona Lisa. It took about six months to try and study all of the colours and I just enjoyed trying to put my, my head in Leonardo da Vinci's mind, you know, when he was painting that. Um, when, it was, when I was playing piano, I had photos of playing piano concerts or, or playing guitar and it was always when I was creating and expressing myself that I was happiest. But then I went through some of the earlier photo albums from when I was very young, and I found one photo that was it was almost like a penny drop moment. And it was, as you mentioned earlier, um, of that electric water pistol. <laughs> uh, my younger brother, Mark, had this, this, you know, it was a toy. It was an electric water pistol. And you know, you fill it with water and, and it would fire about one meter. And it was one of his favorite toys. And as his older brother and a young inventor, I was a self-named inventor as a child, I pulled the thing apart and replaced the motor with a larger motor that I had from one of my other toys and, and swapped the AA batteries out for a nine volt, put it all back together with a little bit of help of using some duct tape to, to put it all back together. And I remember handing it back to my younger brother and he fired this thing, and it absolutely screamed. This thing fired water like 10 times further, like right across the room. <laughs> and I'll never forget the look of joy on my younger brother's face when I'd done that. And it was, it was in that moment after becoming an engineer and, and making things and designing processes and systems and, you know, working in Toyota for all of those years that I, I realized, hang on a minute. I, I, I don't just enjoy making things. I enjoy making things for other people. Yeah. It's that manufacturing joy, which I call it. Yeah. And so I thought, well, can I use my engineering skills to, to manufacture joy, to, to bring joy to people's lives? Um, and, and I was being offered all kinds of jobs, you know, um, other automotive manufacturers from overseas, Tesla, were, were on board trying to recruit um, us engineers and, and I had to go through the whole thought process of, yeah, I'd probably go over there and earn a lot of money and, um, you know, to, to head over to the States and set up their production lines. Mm -hmm. um, but I thought, no, um, I've done that. And I wasn't really keen on the idea of, of taking my family over. Um, we were approached from Toyota in Kentucky and I was offered jobs in design over in Japan. And I just thought, I have the luxury of time here. Um, I have three and a half years to make up my mind. Quite a few engineers left early. Um, they didn't wait around until the end. But um, I just started to listen, you know, really listen to my, my heart. And, um, and that was really visiting all of these things from that photo album, um, the, the model airplanes. The, um, I went to the, it's called the Avalon Air Show. It's a, it's a large air show that they hold in Melbourne. I think it's every two or three years. And I went along to that with my friends and, and thought, you know, 
airplanes. There might be something that takes my fancy that I might be inspired to move into a, an area there. And, um, and it was actually not the airplanes that took my interest. I was walking through one of the pavilions of, of stalls that they had. And this was in 2014. And I saw a, a 3D printer for the first time. It was uh, a company was showing how they could make model aerofoils for an airplane. And, and this part that they were printing on this very, it was, a, it was an, an early MakerBot 3D printer. And um, it was a very, very complicated part. And I was looking at this part thinking, there's no other way to make that. You know, this, this honeycomb structure that they were building into the part. And I thought, what else can this machine make? And it was almost uh, that penny drop moment was when I, it, it took me back to earlier times in my life. It took me back to a time where I was studying at engineering at Monash University. And they, they sent me on a scholarship over to Japan uh, to study mechatronics. And I visited a robotics research facility at Tsukuba University um, where they had developed a $1 million bionic arm. And this was back when I was 24. And I remembered at the time being really amazed at the technology. You know, this arm, I actually got to, to test it and trial it and um, put the sensors onto my arm. It could read the electronic signals coming down through from my brain and it could... Uh, it could replicate what I was actually doing with my hand. And I thought, wow, you know, that's amazing. But at the same time, I, I remember feeling really, really sad that this device would, you know, at a million dollars, wouldn't be accessible to most people on the planet. Even if you could get the cost of that device down to a tenth of the price, to, to say $100,000, and then to a hundredth of the cost down to, to $10,000, or even 1,000, um, for a lot of people that would still be out of reach. And I remember being excited when I saw this 3D printer for the first time, that perhaps this was the way that, um, that we could do that. And, and so I just started playing with the idea. And, you know, I, I think my wife was, was incredible in allowing me to really explore during that time. She let me, allowed me to buy a uh, 3D printer was about $1,600. And uh, we had nowhere to put it. Uh, I remember having it in the, in the living room behind a baby fence so that my two young children wouldn't reach in to the printer when it was printing. <laughs> and I just started designing, I started designing um, finger digits, you know, like for, for a robotic hand and working out ways that it could be made very simply and, and mimicking nature, mimicking the tendons that run in, in the human hand, rather than having complicated, expensive, you know, miniaturized electronics in the hand, could we have tendons that run through the hand to, to not only bring it closer to nature, but make it at a, low, at a lower cost? And as I was designing these things, I, I was making them at home after work, and I even worked out with my, my boss at work. I said, hey, can I come in to work an hour early every day? As it was, I was starting at 7 a.m., but um, can I come in at 6 <laughs> and, uh, and stay a little bit later to use the CAD software? We had these amazing CAD machines at work um, with the most incredible design software. Oh, yeah. Um, you, know, to, you know, off the clock to, to be able to do, do some designing with these um, 3D printed hands that I was trying to design. 
And um, as I did, I started to wonder, I want, you know, who else around the world? There must be someone else around the world who's trying to do the same thing. And um, as it turns out, there was. There was a group over in the, the States called Enable. And they were, they were starting to make these 3D printed hands for kids that were born with hand differences, mm-hmm. children that are born without fingers, um, to be able to, to provide them with a, a 3D printed hand that would give them additional mobility. And I thought, wow, these guys are, these guys are trying to do the same thing. And uh, so I, I started collaborating openly with these group of volunteers. And I, I thought to myself, I've got the world's best design software sitting here. You know, I could probably really, really help, help a lot of people here. But I, I, I wasn't quite sure if that's what I wanted to do. It sounded very interesting. So I set myself a very small goal. I wasn't going to go and change the world, um, but I wanted to change the world for one kid. And so I decided to make one hand for one kid. And his name was Eli. He lived up in up near Sydney in Australia. And, um, and so I, I contacted his family and um, we wanted to make Eli, who was born without fingers on his left hand, we wanted to make him feel like a superhero. And um, so I worked with Eli and his, his mom to, to design the color scheme for an Iron Man style hand with the, the reds and the golds. And, um, and, and so it was my first thing that I'd printed. I'd 3D printed this hand, scaled it to the, to the right size and put it in a nice little box with, um, with a photo on the front of Iron Man, called it Eli's Iron Man hand and, and sent it to him. And it was it was about three or four days later. Um, I was actually sitting at my desk at Toyota during my lunch break. I think I had some lunch in my hand, and I was just scrolling through my emails when I got this email from his parents, and um, and it had some video attachments in there. And I clicked on the video, and I just saw Eli excitedly opening the box that I'd sent him, and. And trying this hand on for the first time, and for the first, must have been thirty seconds to a minute. He was just looking at it, and and opening and closing his left hand for the first time. And then he proceeded to to pick up the packaging, the bubble wrap that the the hand was sent in, and um, and his father asked him, "Do you like it?" And he's like, "Yeah." And he said, "What do you say?" And he just looked at the camera. And he said, thank you. And um, that was a pretty, pretty emotional moment for me um, to, to create that joy on his face. You know, it reminded me of that time where I handed my younger brother that electric water pistol. It's the same feeling. Yeah. And, oh, my goodness, that, that feeling that I had, um, I'd never felt that during my entire career at Toyota, that just overpowering sense of joy so you knew you knew you knew then i i knew i knew right then that i didn't know how i was going to do it but um you know i i just decided this i'm going to do this more you know if something feels good um if if you enjoy it do more of it and i did i i started making more and more of these hands the next one i sent over to new zealand to a boy named zach and um and I, I started a Facebook page. Um, 
it was very random. It was really just for people to eventually find me and ask me if I could make them a hand. And, um, and, and I, I, I started getting contacted by, by people. Um, social media is incredible how things bounce around and, and, um, but it, it was getting to the point I was sending them all around the world, you know, I was, um, as a volunteer, you know, paying for the postage, didn't charge one cent for, for these yeah. devices. It was just, um, fundamentally, it was a gift, an unconditional gift as the way I thought it, um, yeah. with no expectation of a reward. And, um, and, and it was starting to cost a lot of money. Um, I think it was, I 80, yeah, I think it was like $86 just to post one of my arms over to, um, to a girl over in Iraq. And, um, my friends at work actually were saying, man, you know, you, you're going to lose your job in it, you know, <laughs> in a couple of years. Um, you know, all this money you're spending, um, you should be saving, you should buy that first house. You know, my wife and I had been saving for 10 years, um, to, to buy that first house and, um, and, and, and housing prices in Australia were just going up and up and up. And as we saved, it felt like we we're going backwards and backwards and backwards. And, and I thought, you know what? I thought stuff it, you know, um, <laughs> there's more to life than worrying about buying a house, you know? And, and, and I just really started to think, okay, my next job, I'm not going to go and, you know, I was, I was being offered jobs that were just stupid money, you know, um, more money than I was earning <laughs> five days a week at Toyota in three days, you know, as a consultant in a, in a suit and tie, wow. you know, I didn't even own a suit. <laughs> and, um, and I, and I thought, whoa, if I, if I worked three days paid, then maybe I could, I could do two days volunteer work. That would work. Right. Because it's, a, it's a really terrible business model, making something and providing it completely free of charge with, with no revenue stream coming back <laughs> in. Um, worst business model in the world. And there was no way I could see that it would work, but I wanted it to. I, I almost willed it into existence, a way to do that. And, um, and I think when you have that, that will, when you really, really want something to, to, to be, I think sometimes that positive, positive energy, it's not a selfish thing. It's when you're, it's not like I want a Ferrari and, and then all of a sudden you're going to get a Ferrari, right? No. Um, but if you want the world to be a certain way and you really ask that of the universe, I'm, I'm not religious at all, but I'm sure um, a lot of your listeners are, but I think it's, it's all, it's the same, whether you're talking to God or you're talking to the universe, or you're talking to your, your own heart. When you have that unselfish desire for, for the world to be better, um, the, the universe, I think, responds in a way. Yes. And it felt, it felt like really the world started to respond. I, I, was, I walked out of the gate for the last time um, in October 2017 at the Toyota, and I knew exactly what I wanted to do. I had no idea how to do it. And I, I walk down onto the beach. That's where I do a lot of my thinking, down on the beach. And um, I leave the phone in the car so that I'm not distracted. But this one time I forgot and I had it in my pocket. And I was, I was going, what do I do now? I know what I want to do. I don't know how I'm going to do it. And the phone rang in my back pocket. And I'm like, oh, you know, pulled it out. But it was, um, it was the National Australia Day Council. There are a not-for-profit run by the government in Australia. And they have this thing called the Australian of the Year Awards. And, um, and they called me to tell me that someone had nominated me for Australian, one of the Australian of the Year Awards. 
and um, that I was a finalist and they were inviting me to come along um, two weeks after I lost my job to the government house to attend this award ceremony as a, as a finalist. And, uh, and initially I tried to, I sort of played it down and said, look, I'm not really interested in that sort of stuff. Um, it's not about reward for me. It's the reward I get is in seeing the joy in, in other people's faces. Um, but I, um, I went home and spoke to my wife and she said, Matt, you've just lost your job, right? You know what you want to do, but you have no idea how to do it. It's not about awards. But you go to this place, you never know who you're going to meet, right? You might find someone that, that can help you to find a way to, to continue doing this, as crazy as that sounds. And, um, and so I did. I, I actually went to, we call it an op shop here in Australia. Do you have op shops over in Canada? It's a, like a, ah, oh, hang on, Americans might call it a thrift store. It's like a yes. yeah, secondhand clothes and all of that. I spent Absolutely. 50, yeah, yeah. So I went and I bought a $15 suit <laughs> and, <laughs> oh, my goodness, the, the arms and the legs were, was, you know, I had to really push them up. It was, um, it didn't quite fit that well, but I wasn't going to spend more than that on a suit after I just lost my job. And, um, and I rocked up and I, I had, even had my kids there and, um, and they called my name out. They, they had me up on stage and all of a sudden they were handing me this award for my volunteer work and I was just like, What's going on here? Um, I was 15 minutes later, I was doing phone interviews, national, on our national ABC radio. And, and they're all of a sudden going, yeah, you know, this is cool. Keep, keep going. And, and for me, I am so glad I went. It's not about the award at all. Um, but I, one of the other recipients happened to be a man um, who's pretty well known here in Australia. He was an actor and um, turned philanthropist or, well, he runs a charity for cancer vanquishment called Love Your Sister. And this bloke, Samuel Johnson, he really took a liking to what I was doing. And being a little bit further ahead in the charity game, he'd been running his charity quite successfully for, for quite a few years. We were talking about it and I said, you yeah, know, I, I provide these devices for free and I don't know how to sustain that. And he said, well, I don't draw a wage from our charity. And he'd just ridden 15,000 kilometres around Australia on a unicycle to raise money for cancer research. And he's like, yeah, 100% of all of the profits that come into this charity go directly towards research. No skimming, no money taken, no setting up massive offices in large cities and, and buying, you know, all of these fancy uh, four-wheel drives and driving around in the desert like some charities do. And, and I was like, oh, my God, how do you do that? And he said... Um, public speaking. And, and, and because he was a, a voice actor, um, you know, being a, he was able to do TV commercials and, 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 and radio adverts yeah. and, and, and public speaking. And that was how he was able to pay the back end of the charity. And he took me under his wing um, and, and said, I'll help you to find a way to sustain this, this, this great thing. And um, we traveled up to Canberra, our, our capital city for um, on Australia day to go and meet the prime minister. You know, here's, just losing my job, and um, and and then all of a sudden I'm uh, at our prime minister's house. Um, I even used his toilet. It was quite funny. <laughs> <laughs> but um, and um, all of a sudden I'm um, I'm I'm explaining to the prime minister of Australia what I'm trying to do, and 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 people just started coming on on board, and I left that ceremony with a great sense of 
confidence that it was almost a message from the universe that I was I was on the right track. And it was then that my wife and I decided if, if my wife wasn't the person that she is, I, I wouldn't be doing what I, I'm doing. Um, just that courage that she's got. She said, Matt, follow your passion. And um, and we just decided to take a, a risk to to utilize our entire redundancy payout from Toyota. It would put food on the table for probably two to three years um, without a job. And um, we decided to utilize that entire redundancy payout to work as full-time volunteer for the next two years, potentially three, however long we could stretch that money to really have a go at, really have a go at this, find a way to sustain it. And that was a big call, you know. We, we could have almost used that money plus the savings to buy a house, that house that we were saving for in the first place. But I decided. I was going to say, no. <laughs> there goes the house. There goes the house. But you got a higher calling here. Yeah. You know, um, I think there's a lot more to life than uh, than what you can accumulate during it. You know, I don't think many people have written on their headstones, um, drove a Ferrari and had three houses, rest in peace. You know, nope. it's, it's life's a lot bigger than that. The people that remember you are the people that you loved and and shared your energy and your time and your spirit and your soul with. And, um, and making the world, I think the ultimate definition of success is, is leaving the world in a better place than when we entered it. Exactly. So we decided to move back to my hometown, um, down at a place called Phillip Island, which is um, about two hours south of Melbourne, which is right down the south of Australia. A little island with fairy penguins and little penguins, these little, the smallest species of penguin in the world. It's a, and a, just, it's an island surrounded by a beautiful surf beach and, and a beautiful tight-knit community. And uh, I, I thought, you know what? I was so blessed to be raised on this beautiful island with this beautiful community and my own children. I wanted to raise them there, so first, first and foremost. And I also thought if I was to find a way to sustain this volunteer activity and make it into something bigger, this would be the community that I'd want to do it in. They'd have my back. Um, they'd be very supportive. And so we decided to rent a, a little Lisa, a house um, down on Phillip Island. It had a single car garage. And I walked in and we looked through the house and I'm like, wow, this is, this is amazing. This, I've got a dedicated room now. I don't have a 3D printer on the, on the floor anymore in the, in, the, in the living room. And that ended up being three on the kitchen table you know, very forgiving wife to allow her husband to put three 3D printers on the, the living room table. <laughs> and then um, that, that they moved into the spare room. So now I had this in this new house that we were moving into, um, had a, a dedicated single car garage that I could work from. And we had 12 3D printers all of a sudden in there. The more printers you have, the faster you can make these hands and you can make multiple parts on different printers. And I, I, I did that for about two years. But the media in Australia were very interested in how I was progressing. Um, since my time at Toyota, you know, they were following the story and even these national science shows, they were talking about global access to prosthetic devices and bionic arms and things and how, how they're so expensive. You know, uh, low-end bionic arm can cost from 30000 way up to for commercial devices to be hundreds of thousands of dollars for, for an arm. And, and they were contrasting what I was trying to do here in Australia on this, in a single car garage, uh, a man in a shed trying to 
develop this technology at a, a low cost that would be more accessible. Um, and so media crews were coming through my house and, and people all of a sudden, you know, had a national audience around Australia seeing where I ate my dinner, you know, on my kitchen table or, you know, and I thought this has to change. And um, as it turns out, I was awarded a, a $10,000 humanitarian grant and just to, um, to continue my course. And I, I thought, I know exactly what I need to do with this. And, um, and there was a, a factory in, in our main town that was um, up for lease. And I decided to, I agreed, um, negotiated with them just to lease it for six months initially with that, with that money. Mm-hmm. And if I couldn't find a way to then grow again, you know, build a, a larger team, then so be it. It was just no fear. Just it's the right thing to do. It may not succeed, but I believed um, if you have the right intention, then you will succeed regardless, you know, um, whether you succeed or fail. Um, at least you tried. Exactly. So I was willing to give it a go. And um, and as we, we we moved into this new factory, we started to get more. We had high school students coming and volunteering for us. We had more volunteers coming in. We we had um, one of my kindergarten friends who I've been friends with since the age of three. She decided just to help come and clear my inbox. I had, I think, about 3,000 unread emails in my inbox. I, I didn't even have the time to open them, let alone reply I could be and these re- were from all around the world, people asking for help, right? And, um, and all of a sudden, it felt like I was walked into a large sports stadium where we had all of these people asking, and you want to help every single one of them. But it felt like you're talking to one fan in the crowd, for example, if it was in a sports stadium. They say, can you help me with this? And you go, yeah, 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 I'll, I'll help you out. And then you've got hundreds of other people asking for, for help, and then you forget where that person was sitting. You know, it was so chaotic. It was all of a sudden when you're making something for free um, and, and you want to you help everyone, regardless of how busy you are, um, we needed some sort of structure. So my friend came on board to really take on a personal assistant uh, role so I could focus on the making and the designing of the new devices. And she would take, Peter, she would take care of um, all of the, the admin side of things. And um, so we were still uh, just volunteers. We weren't even a registered charity at this point, but the media kept coming and now we could bring politicians through. We could bring our local council through. Um, film crews could come in without having a camera pointing at my, my bedroom door. <laughs> and, uh, right. and then all of a sudden, one day, um, I was feeling really insecure um, about, gee, how long, can, how, how long can we make this work, you know? There's, there were donation. Uh, people were, it was through crowdfunding initially before we were a charity. People would support $5 or $1. And we had a massive list of all of the people that were supporting us on the wall, you know, this new factory. Um, you know, they, they made this happen. And then again, I get this phone call in this time of just feeling that fear again, going, gee, you know, can we make this work? And um, it was the, the British High Commission calling to say that Queen Elizabeth II had given me some, uh, it was called the Points of Light Award, which she gives to uh, one person from every Commonwealth country. And, and I was apparently the second Aussie to ever be awarded this thing. And I was just like, you, you can't be serious. You know, how on earth did the Queen find out about what we're doing down here on Little Phillip Island, you know? And so the, the British High Commission drove down in this car and it, the, the number plate was just a crown 
right? <laughs> and they pulled up in, in this industrial thing. So the mechanics next door were going, what on earth's going on here? We've got this, this car with a crown. <laughs> but they handed me this award and, um, from, and with a hand-signed, you know, letter from the Queen saying, um, acknowledging my intention of what I'm trying to do, to try and make assistive devices accessible to people who can't afford it. And, and for me, that wow. was... Um, that was really special. Like that was, um, that was another one of those moments where you think the universe is just telling you, keep going, you know, and I got so much energy from that, like just to say, keep going, you know, Absolutely. and, um, and as it turns out, then one of the, the media pieces that I'd been on a, a large law firm down in Adelaide had seen that and they, um, they got in contact and said, we want to work pro bono to set you up as a, as a registered charity, which usually takes years, years. It's a very difficult process to, um, to become a tax-deductible um, level charity. And, um, and, and they, they, they did it in like two months. They were just so incredible. That's what they did, wow. you know. Like it would normally cost tens of thousands of dollars to engage these sorts of legal people. But they, they had my back. They, they helped out. And... Um, and they, they came on board and it just things then just started to gradually snowball and we were making more and more in hands and we were sending them out and we were really starting to kick goals. And then, bang, here comes COVID. <laughs> and um, all of a sudden, the world, world really did change. And we're, we're making all of these hands for people and sending them around. And then our local hospital um, told us that they um, – they only had 10 disposable face shields left. And we started um, thinking, well, maybe we could, we could help out that way, providing free face shields instead of free hands, you know. And, um, and so we did. So we went in, we spent the next um, six months making face shields 20 hours a day. Wow. And, um, and we, we were able to provide them to every hospital in the region. Um, and not just hospitals, nursing homes and Fabulous. sending them all around Australia for free. It was exactly yeah. the same. We had to change our constitution, of course. Our, our lawyers split our revenue so people could still donate to making hands, but people could also support to making these these face shields. Yeah. Um, but that was um, when it really felt like, um, you know, our, our, our how and our what changed, but our why didn't. And I think for the listeners, that's that's real, a really important message you're your how and your what will change. But if you continue doing what you do in align with your core values, your your ethics, um, and you stay absolutely true to that, the why never shifts, it never changes. Um, and and we just wanted to be as, as useful to the community as we could during that really difficult period. Um, God bless you. It was... Um, it actually started out as something even different than that. Like from, from the pandemic in Australia, toilet paper disappeared off the shelves. There was no toilet paper. People were hoarding Same it. Same here. Yeah, right? <laughs> Crazy, right? Um, and there were a lot of people desperate for, for toilet paper. They were um, using newspapers, which clogs up the drains and all kinds of things. And I started this tiny little campaign locally um, where I had a some of the Toyota systems came out. It was a red bin and a green bin. Um, people could come and drop off. If they had bought one of those large packs of toilet paper and they had any to spare, almost sounds like an episode of Seinfeld. Have you got a square to spare? You know, Elaine <laughs> in, the, in the toilet stall. Um, they'd, they'd come and drop off the toilet paper. Then we'd put that in a one-week quarantine um, where we, you know, if COVID was still alive on it, if someone had touched it, whatever it was. Um, and then that would come out 
in in a um, in a green bin ready to go and we actually put that out the front of our charity and um and i thought you know these someone might come and steal the whole bin you know in desperate times but they didn't you know people would come and take just one that was the rule take one and, and when you if you um, need another one come back and get another and um, and it, and it worked and and it was sort of the face shield sort of went on from that it was like how can we connect the community to start working together um during this difficult time and and support each other and um and so that really built a strong relationship within the community during that that difficult time they um they ended up naming me citizen of the year in our local council in our local um, shire in our, in, the, in our region um, for those face shields um, but but for me, the, the real thing from that was I made a lot of really good friends and um, and my networks expanded yeah. during that time. Yeah. Um, it was an, oh, yeah, it was a really difficult but amazing time. But and I, but that pandemic for me, um, it was a time that I could um, actually spend a lot more time. We had a lot of lockdowns here and for me that was a time to innovate. So yeah. we released a new design called the Kinetic Hand during that time. It took three years to develop. Um, Six months of the pandemic was spent putting together a 100-page manual uh, for this for this new 3D printed hand, and and I believed that it was you know the software that we were using was so advanced that we could create these really amazing designs, and um, and I shared it with the world. You know, could you imagine three years of your time in in this design and and hitting the upload button? Bang! It's now everybody's you know sharing it open source with the world. And within weeks, you know, I was um, doing some interviews with this Enable group over in the States and they were interviewing me over a, uh, a live stream where people from all around the world could now start um, asking questions about the design and, and how to put it together. And, and, um, and that, that for me was a really special moment because, um, you know, we were making lots and lots of hands at the time. But I realised that, you know, it's like that analogy of walking into the stadium, you can't help everybody. You know, and that broke my heart. You know, even if I was helping hundreds or thousands of people, it would break my heart if I couldn't help just one. And um, and so by sharing those designs with others, it was um, increasing our reach exponentially. People all around the world started making our designs. We now have almost 7,000 people around the world making our kinetic hand design. I love this. You know, and, and I think that is... Um, that's how we can make assistive technology accessible to everyone on the planet. Well, and and I think, Matt, you've also said this means, and I love the stadium analogy. That's that's so visual. It's so impactful. We, none of us live forever. So you were very impacted by this wonderful man, God rest his soul, called Fred Hollows. Yes. And Fred Hollows being an, an eye surgeon rather than running around the world and fixing people's eyes, he trained the doctors locally to do the surgery that was required so that it was like he could be everywhere for everyone. And that's the same model that you've adopted yourself. Yeah, he, he, he from, uh, Fred Hollows for me is a massive um, inspiration in my life because um, he realized two things that the, the the two things that were the barrier for um, people not being able to treat their own cataract blindness was the cost of the lens. The intraocular lenses were very expensive. Yeah. Um, 
And he realized that the cost of those lenses needed to come down to a point that people could donate them to somebody for free through the, through the charity. They could donate $5, that would pay for a lens, and then that would be someone's eyesight restored. Yeah. And he also, as you mentioned, uh, realized that um, there were very few people in the world that could perform that surgery. Um, so right. he trained armies of surgeons right through Southeast Asia. And, and, um, and as a result, after his death, he's helped m- millions of people. You know, and and that's really um, that's a, a life well lived. You know, he could have made a lot of money during his his limited years of his life, making lots of money and probably leaving a large inheritance to his children. Um, but he decided to do the opposite. He, he decided to leave his inheritance to humanity. And we have the same drive to almost for me. It's about making myself redundant once again. And I, but I love that. I love that. That's the goal. Yeah, that's the goal. Right. Take myself out of the equation. If I get hit by a bus crossing the road tomorrow, um, people will still have access to our designs and to be able to continue developing and improving those designs. When we release our designs, we release them under an open source license so that anybody can download, scale it to the right size, modify it, and improve it. And to encourage that sharing of, of ideas and collaboration that's how we can. That's how we can solve world problems. Is when we all work together. Exactly. And um, and and it's really, it's beyond what we do. It's it's trying to encourage others to do the same in in different fields as well. Yes, you're setting the example. You're setting such a brilliant example, and it's working and it's making such a huge difference that we hope that people will be inspired as you were by Fred Hollows, to yeah. keep doing this kind of work. Yeah, and it's um it's an investment in in humanity that um, we're trying to make, and and for people like we we got this email sent two months after I released this design from a hospital in Thailand, and they translated an email from a man that it sent to us on the twenty third of December twenty twenty. I'll never forget the day because it was our last breakup day before our Christmas break, mm-hmm. and this man had um, sent us this email saying that um, this hospital had built their own 3D printers, and they had made him two hands. He'd, this man said he had lived for five decades without both of his hands um, through leprosy. He was living in a leprosy colony. So if you put people on a rung in society, in, in their society, he would probably consider himself on the bottom rung of society. Can't work. No one will buy fruit and vegetables from him in the streets thinking that they might catch his um, his disease. Yeah. Um, for him, all of a sudden, to have this hospital show that they cared enough to to make him a hand and teach him and train him um, to to be able to pick up objects again, um, I think he must have felt a lot of love and a lot of joy. Um, oh. And it just now it, I tear up just thinking about it because it was really special for us. And um, and that one moment, it felt like that's when I got paid from yeah. that three years of work. Of that design and sharing that, you know, and that uncertainty of where where we were going, just for that one man, yeah, um, to to have that gift from these beautiful people in Thailand, and he, he he'll probably never know my name, and that's that's good because it's not about it's not about me, it's or us, our organization, um, it's about people knowing that some things do come for free; they should come for free. And, and, and I think as a very privileged society, Australia, um, Canada, yes. both very, very lucky places to be born. 
Um, Absolutely. Just to 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 share that privilege with those that weren't so lucky um, where they were born. My father actually taught me that lesson at a young age, and we are really lucky and blessed. And and to share that with people to say, hey, um, you've had the ability to have an education, to go to university, to 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 develop all of these skills, um, to have access to people who want to help you. That's privilege, and, and I think it's our responsibility as a society to to make sure that that is um, is shared with everyone. Everyone is created equal, and um, and everyone deserves the same. And people with limb differences deserve opportunities like we have. Absolutely, God bless you, Matt. The the first time we spoke, which was not during this recording, but when we first met, and you mm. turned your camera towards the wall, and there were hundreds of pictures of kids with the hands that you had made them holding a toy playing an instrument being with their friends riding a bicycle it's like you have a piece of you literally or figuratively whether you made it or whether you you sent it out in open source and somebody else made it those people those kids are like family to you they they are and and we we don't call them patients or clients, uh, we call them recipients of our gift, you know, um, our recipients. And, and these recipients, every single one of them, are like family to us. Yeah. It's a, when we decide to make a device for a, a, especially a child, um, it's a, for us it's a commitment for life that we will always be there um, to, to, to help in any way that we can. Um, whether that's to make an, an attachment to hold a skipping rope or we've, devi- we've developed um, devices to play the piano without a left hand um, or to, you know, um, to serve a tennis ball, you know. So all of these things that the children want to do and, and to not have to jump through the hurdles of um, how they're going to get funding to, to get that, you know, we're lucky in Australia we have a pretty good um, insurance scheme, national, the NDIS in Australia. But it's still a process, and and sometimes kids don't want to put a, together a plan um, to to say um, I want to skip with my friends um, at school, or, or you know, if, if, even if it's something they just want to do for one day, we'll spend however um, amount of time designing that for them. Even if it took six months or a year to design something that um, only for one kid, you know that because we're sharing this design with others. Um, it'll become exponential. Other people will start making it and, um, and improving upon that design even further. So it's, um, it's a really special thing. We, we've had families come and stay with us for, for New Year's, you know, coming and visiting and staying and, and our kids playing together. And it's really special. It's, um, I feel like the richest man in the world, to be honest. I've got such a big family now, globally, people all around the world that I, I call family. And, um, it's beautiful. I don't know what your definition of being rich is, but that's mine. It's mine too, because when you lead with your heart and you live with your heart, those are the rewards that you get. And it's it's beautiful. When we first met, though, Matt, I think I remember you telling me a story about it was either a little girl or a little boy that was embarrassed to wear their hand to school. Yeah. And so what did the mom do to overcome that? And you have a picture of that on your wall. I'd love to hear that story. I'd love the listeners to hear that story. Oh, well, there are many, many stories like that. Um, 
having a limb difference, a lot of kids can feel a bit of shame and embarrassment with it, wanting to hide it. But making these really cool looking hands, it's about embracing limb difference and making people feel proud. And often family, you know, younger siblings will say, that's not fair. I want one too, kind of, you know. Um, Zach over in New Zealand, he, he went from being the shy kid to all of his friends just really just so proud of him. Um, he, he made it onto the front page of the New Zealand Herald. And, um, wow. and his friends started bringing their newspapers to school and asking him to, to autograph, you know, the, the oh. newspapers and just the, the confidence um, that he got. And, um, and, and, and this is a case of something that we didn't make um, from one of our designs. It's called the Kinetic Finger. Uh, which I released, I think, back in about 2016. And um, we we were contacted by a mother in, in Germany that had downloaded that design and modified it. It was a single finger for if somebody chops off their, their finger, they're able to get almost full function back um, with this thing that costs about $1 to make. And, um, and she had adapted our design to make, I think it was about four fingers for her son. He was missing many fingers and, um, and created a whole character for him because he was very, very shy as well with his um, hand differences. And, uh, and he, um, she, she created a character called Lion Man and, um, and made the whole outfit into a superhero thing with his new prosthetic feet, well, um, new fingers. Um, that he was able to to use to to play and and, um, and that was really special to then jump on a Zoom meeting with her over in Germany and um, and just understanding her her design you know and and um, and ha- how she designed it in that way and sharing the ideas backwards and forwards and just that collaboration it's it's really really special those moments you know when you you hear how much joy um, it's brought to to her life and she said if you ever over in coming over to Germany, um, you've always got a bed, you know, you're always yeah. welcome. You're, you're like, they, it feels like family everywhere. Um, I was in Germany for a conference many years ago. One of our largest banks in Australia sent me on a world trip to visit all of the largest bionic and, um, developers. And I was at a conference in, in Germany and this man uh, contacted me to, to wanted to discuss the, the design of that, that same finger design. And um, and I I had no I didn't know anyone in Germany. I said sure. And he came. He drove two and a half hours to visit me at my hotel room before the conference and um, the day before. And he sh- he was wearing my finger design, but I didn't know him. And um, with his backwards beret, Alex, his name was. Um, he just said, I just wanted to meet you and say thank you for sharing this design. My friend three D printed it for me, and I wanted to meet the guy who designed it and just say thanks. And, and he told me his his story of how he went into this massive depression after he lost his, his finger in an accident and how uh, he was in hospital and he, he's, he was smoking more than he used to smoke and from the stress of everything and it just really affected him. And um, how his friend then as a present, a gift, downloaded our design and, and made it for him, scaled it to the right size. And, and he said it just it changed his life. He all of a sudden just felt happy again and stopped smoking and then he quit smoking and he, he believes that improved his sperm count. And he said, we've been trying for years. My wife got pregnant and here's my, this is my wife and here's our unborn baby. And I was just like, I never knew this man existed. And, and, and that's the thing. When you share openly, just go into that open source world, we will never understand how many lives have changed that ripple, how far that ripple will travel. But really traveling over the other side of the world and meeting this man 
that just really put things in perspective to think, wow, you know. And we thought it gave me a lot of energy when I came back from that trip to really um, think, what else can we do? Can well, Let's make all, not just hands, but we started making all of these different assistive devices to hold a, a knife or a fork. Um, we're developing a low-cost bionic arm at the moment, which um, we're very excited about. We've got lots of university students supporting um, from software developers to mechatronics and biomedical engineers working with us now. Um, and we've developed a, a bionic arm that we're, we're hoping to share soon um, that's equivalent of a forty dollars to $60,000 multifunction bionic arm, and it's cost us $27 so far in parts. Excellent. So it's, it's, um, it's under a thousandth of the cost, and, and we're really excited to share that with the world um, so others can learn from it, especially the commercial industries, to hopefully get the cost of their products down to make them more accessible. Oh, God bless you, man. At this point, I would like to ask you, how can the world get in touch with you, follow you, support you, donate to free 3D hands? This is the call out of the charity, the website, the Instagram, whatever you got, give it to me now. Our website is www.free3dhands.org. And we're also on Facebook and Instagram. Um, if you search free 3D hands, you'll find us there. Um, on our website, we do have links to if if um, if that's something you'd like to support us in doing what we're doing for making a donation. Or if you know somebody who has a hand difference who might like to get in contact with us, we have a, an application form um, just to, to give us the details where we need to send it. And um, we'll ask for some specifics on uh, to help us with the designing but there's all of that that information's on our website um yeah we, and but we'd be really grateful for any any support in any way um that that people can offer and and join us on our uh, and on our mission they will they will we've been just so blessed like you know from not knowing how how's going to make it work you know that samuel johnson got me onto the public speaking circuit. And that was how I was able to start paying eventually after three years, um, paying myself a wage and as well as all of our staff mm -hmm. from that public speaking. So the, the keynote speaker fee doesn't go to myself as an individual. It goes to the charities, a tax deductible donation to pay the wages so that every mum, dad and pensioner donation to the charity goes directly towards making the hands. Beautiful. And, um, and we're just starting to get corporates on board supporting us with an annual uh, continual support Great. Um, so that we don't have to focus so much on, on the fundraising to, you know, finding ways for the charity to survive um, and yeah. we can focus more on, on innovation and, and doing what we do best. So it's, um, it's been an amazing journey. We, we, had, we had even somebody after not being able to lease this, this factory moving forward with um, rent increases that were, it's probably happening most places in the world at the moment, rents of the factory going up. Somebody on Phillip Island who'd retired and realised they couldn't take their money with them, they bought this new design centre for us, for the charity, um, and they're leasing it to us for 10 years rent-free just to help us to not worry about money and, and focus on, on just helping people. And it's been really, truly amazing, the support, that we've, we continue to get from just the most beautiful people. And, and I just feel blessed in the, in the whole charity space that um, we, we're exposed to just seeing beautiful people every day, you know, and, and, um, and, and wanting to help us in their own unique ways. 
and and it's um, yeah, I have a lot of a lot of I have a lot of hope for the for the future of the world if we can all start collaborating and and working together to to help people. Thank you, Matt. And you know what? The first time I talked to you, and this time, you restore the world's faith in humanity. You really do. Because with so many ugly things that go on every single day in the world, it's easy to get pulled down. But yeah. just talking to you about the incredible work that you're doing is, is so freeing and so uplifting. So I have to ask my signature question. What does bravery mean to you, Matt? Bravery is finding a way to believe in yourself and your core values and standing true to those no matter what. And I feel very proud that I've had the support around me, um, especially from my wife, to allow me to be brave and, and take this leap of faith. Um, being brave is just staying true to yourself and your belief in, in what is right and living true to that. Thank you. Thank you, Matt. Promise me, please, that you'll come back and chat again. I want to hear Absolutely. more about what you're doing and, and more stories and, and more people's lives that you've, you've changed either directly or indirectly or somehow. But thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. And thank you um, for, for sharing this journey. Thanks so much for listening to Breaking Brave. For updates between episodes, please visit my website, MarilynBarefoot.com. You can also find me at Marilyn Barefoot. That's it for today. See you next time.